Let's pray, and then we will dive into week 10. Father, we thank you that we get the chance to be able to gather together, even if it is cold outside. God, we know that even the turning of the seasons is an indication of your faithfulness. And so, Father, I pray that as we are working through the content tonight, that we would be mindful of how you are, in fact, faithful, even if it is um, us looking at some difficult content. God, I pray that you would uh, allow us to understand it better. And as is my custom, I would just ask that you would uh, pray for me, that what I say would be beneficial and clear and accurate. Um, take a moment and pray for me. Father, I thank you for the time that I've got to spend in study and be able to look at your word and to be able to um, have conversation with other pastors. God, I pray that uh, all of that um, would be distilled in a good, beneficial, honoring way for you and edifying for us. God, I pray that you would send your spirit to help um, enliven our discussion and that, Father, that you would uh, make much of yourself as we talk about the prophets tonight. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, come on in, find a seat. Uh, we're going to be doing more discussion tonight than normal, um, and so hopefully this will be a little bit of a different uh, night for us. Let me recap where we were. Last week we talked about the United Monarchy, uh, in big quotation marks, united, um, because even in the middle of the United Monarchy, before David takes the throne, there's actually basically a civil war. Um, so we talked about the rise of Saul to the throne, then we talked about his monarchy, David, Samuel, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Solomon. And uh, we're basically just going to stop right there, and you'll ex I'll explain why here in just a bit. Um, but the big two points that I want you to take away from last week was that the failures of Israel's monarchs are our failures as well, right? It's not something that was uh, relegated to just them, and that's something that we never struggle with because we're not kings. Like, yeah, but you're, you have the same failures one way or another. And then the second thing is that we need to recognize that God uses broken sinners to bring about his will even in the midst of that. Yeah? So if you want more details, go look at last week. All right, so where we are going tonight is I am going to be talking about the prophets. Okay? I want to make a clear distinction. I'm talking about the prophets and not prophecy. Okay, those are two very different things. We were necessarily going to talk about what the prophets said and did, um, which does in fact constitute prophecy. However, the focus is going to be on the role of the prophets, what they're actually doing in Israel, how they function in the, uh, in the narrative that we see in the Old Testament. And so this is where we're actually heading. We're going to talk very briefly about different terms for prophets, what they actually did, how they operated, what they did with predictions. And I think that's one of the big things that I think we can get sideways on and misunderstand with uh, what, what they're actually doing when they are speaking. Some themes, and we're going to finish on the day of the Lord. All right? So we're going to have more conversation, more discussion in here. So there's going to be a lot of storytelling that's going to go on with uh, explaining some of the stuff with the uh, prophets. So there you have it. Um, we are primarily, I just want to remind us, we are primarily working through seeing how God is at work in history. And that's the reason why we're focusing on the role of the prophet, not what they produced with prophecy. We're focusing on how God used these men in history. So that's why we're landing there. Yeah. All right. First off, this one will be real quick and there's not a huge like theological point, but it's something I feel like you need to know. Um, what are different terms that we use for prophets? One prophet. In Genesis 27, that's actually the first time we see that word show up, Navi, right? This is where the word means as someone who speaks on behalf of someone else. And who is that someone else? God, right? I mean, that's, we've got to understand where the message is coming from is from God to the prophet to his audience. We'll talk about that here in a bit. Um, another word that you will see um, or phrase is man of God. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, that's how Samuel is described. And then three verses later, he's described as a seer. All right, now that implies he is seeing what? If he is someone who sees, what is he looking at? The future? Is that what you said as well, Paul? Visions, 
Like that's what we're talking about here. So there's someone who is seeing as in like a vision or a prophet, right? So it's a whole, whole different word, but we're describing the same guy. Now there's nuance as to what those words mean, but at the end of the day, prophets. That's who we're talking about, okay? They function differently depending on how they receive their message. Uh, Elijah, he is called, or he calls himself a prophet um, at one point, but then he also calls himself a servant of God, and not just as someone who is like submissive to the Father, but as in somebody who is, um, who is willingly hearing a message to deliver, to do the work of his superior, right? So prophets can also be called servants. And then lastly, you can see them being called messengers as well. The word for messenger is malak. And malak, you might even hear the name of an Old Testament book in that. Y'all know what word or what book that is? Malach, Malachi. So Malachi, whenever you have that he at the end, that's the my portion. So Malachi's name means my messenger, right? And so all these cats, if you ever run across it, if you see any of those words, we're talking about a prophet. Cool? Pop quiz. How many prophets are there just in the Old Testament? Whether they are named, whether they're unnamed, whether they write, whether they don't write, about how many prophets do you think there are? Say again. 40. 40. Somebody want to price his writing? Go 39, you know? No other guesses? 36. 36, okay. Ed? There's 7,000 that he's kept. I think, is where I, I think that's in 1 uh, Kings 18. So, okay, that is like the trivia part. They're like, yeah, we really don't know, right? And then you have Saul, uh, Saul is um, counted among the prophets when he's singing and he's prophesying like, well, how many dudes were there? Don't know. But if you count the number of men who were said to prophesy, whether they have a name attached to them or not, it's about 55, 60, depending on who you count, Okay. How many of those 60 actually wrote books of the Bible or wrote anything down that we know of? You should be able to do the math on that a whole lot easier. How many minor prophets are there? Y'all should know that one. There's 12. Okay. There's 12. How many major prophets are there? There's three of those, so 15 prophets wrote. So we're talking a quarter of the ones who are named, mentioned, as functioning as prophets, only a quarter of them wrote. We'll talk about why that is here in a little bit. Stick that in your mind, brain, just hold on to it. Cool? All right, so that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's talk about what prophets did. How do they operate? What's going on here? Now, in order to actually um, explain how we get to these cats, we actually have to explain where we've been in the storyline so far. So in Samuel, remember first and second Samuel's one book, Samuel, it closes with David's death, and then first Kings, the book of Kings, first and second Kings together, that opens with basically Solomon reigning, right? He lasts about 11, 12 chapters, and then it just goes real bad, right? Um, so what happens for the rest of the book of Kings is king, these different kings are talked about, right? There's about 20 northern kings and about 20 southern kings, right? Uh, all the ones in the north are garbage. All the ones in the south, about eight of them get a passing grade, right? But what is also, or who is also paired with these different kings? Prophets. And if you're looking in 1 Kings, who is the big prophet that we find out about in the book of 1 Kings? Elijah. And 2 Kings, the big prophet is Elisha, right? So this is what's going on. Kings is then going to de detail how these different kings are leading the nations, north and the south, and how God is going to speak to them through the prophets, okay? Now, the reason why we need to see them at this point 
is whenever we get further into this series, there's gonna be all sorts of minor profits and major profits are even gonna overlap. By the way, you know the only difference between a major and a minor profit is just how much they wrote. Not how prominent they were, not how successful they were, it's just like how long their books were. That's it, right, it really is. So when we get to those points, I'm gonna mention, hey, this prophet was there during this king's reign. And I'm gonna move on. Because we don't have time to address every one of these cats. But we need to see what they're actually doing there. So well, let me just demonstrate this for you. Uh, I've already told you that Solomon, he lasts about a dozen chapters or so into 1 Kings. And then let's read 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2. I'm reading from the ESV, and this is what it says. And behold, this is after... Uh, uh, Jeroboam is already taken over in the north and Rehoboam's down in the south. We'll talk about that uh, next week. It'll be on a video. Um, verse 1 of chapter 13. And behold, a man of God, which when you see that, you should see he's not just some religious dude. Like, he's a prophet. A man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, which is not a good altar. Like, that's not... <laughs> this is not a good situation. And what does this guy say? The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the, uh, the, priests of the high places who make offerings to you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That's not a good thing, just so you know. So as soon as we get beyond the last monarch of the united monarchy of Israel, we get to the first king in the north, and immediately you have a prophet saying, what you're doing is wrong. We don't even know the cat's name. He's one of those 45, at least, that we don't know their names, right? He's one of those cats. So you're going to see that a lot. Incidentally, this leads us to our next point. What are these guys doing? They are often speaking truth to power through confrontation or preaching, okay? And what I mean by that is like they are sticking their neck out to go tell a king who's in charge of an army, you should not be doing this. The Lord is going to judge you for that. That is a risky endeavor, right? We're going to read some more here in just a moment about that. But we've already actually seen this take place. Whenever we were in Samuel and David had his sin with Bathsheba, who's the one who confronted him? Nathan, the prophet. Right? So you can go look at that in uh, that account, but I want to read for you Jeremiah 26, 20 through 24. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but Jeremiah 26. This is after Jeremiah has already gotten in hot water with Jehoiakim, who is the king at that point. He's already gotten in hot water, and he can't even be around this dude because that king's going to kill him. And so Jeremiah 26, verse 20 says this. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, right? So here's just another cat. We don't know his name, but what is he doing? Prophesying in the name of the Lord, Uriah, Malah, my bad. We do know his name. Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. And he prophesied against the city and against the land in the words of those of Jeremiah. So he's doing the exact same thing Jeremiah's doing. And Jeremiah's already in hot water. He can't even be around the king because he's going to die. Okay, well, this probably is not going to go so hot for this cat. Let's find out. Verse 21. And when King Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all the officials, you see what I'm saying? Like, why would Jeremiah add that unless it's like, hey, this is not going to go well, right? When he heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and he fled and escaped to Egypt. And then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, and they took him from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with a sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Speaking truth to power in this time will get you killed. Verse 24, And the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who was with, Jeremiah, uh, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. And the point there is, the same thing that happened to Uriah was going to happen to Jeremiah. It's just a matter of time, it seems like. Yeah? These guys are constantly confronting people to their face. And if they're not confronting them, they're spending the rest of their time preaching about how they have or will confront them to their face. This is a big deal, right? 
And this is one reason why Jesus, whenever he's reflecting on the Pharisees and he's talking about how there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown and that the Pharisees are a brood of vipers, he actually says, man, y'all keep killing every prophet I send to you. It's because he's pointing back to guys like this because every time they speak truth to power, they get got, okay? So I want us to see that that's a big deal. And then what ends up happening is that we have all these cats that are unnamed or they're named and they're not writing, those guys are all earlier in the Old Testament, but later in the Old Testament, these guys start writing. And when they write, it's in really dense poetry. Now, last fall, whenever we went through our hermeneutics class, I did not specifically talk about how to read um, prophets and prophetic literature. And the reason for that was because it's poetry. So what we know about how to read poetry, you ought to import that into how to read the prophets. There you go, right? That's essentially what we need to do here. But this is, I think, really important because that's part of the reasons why we, uh, we just don't like reading the prophets is because of the poetry that's contained within. Yeah? Cool? All right, let me give you a big takeaway about how the prophets operated. And this is like a no-duh, but let me just say it anyway. The prophets received a message from God, and then they were directed to speak his message to the intended audience. Sometimes that's one dude, the king. Sometimes it's to go and anoint a king. Sometimes it's to go do some crazy thing in one city. But there is like an intended effect. They receive their message from God, and they go and they do it. Now... Here's the application I want to make for us. Um, I think we don't ever say this out loud, but I think at times we can fall into this trap of thinking, yeah, but like they're so far removed from that prophet and his original audience that like there's just so much space between them and us that there's really not a whole lot that can re really apply directly to me, okay? I don't think anybody would ever say that out loud, but I think that we think that. And that's what we use as a convenient excuse to like not do the hard work. But let me just illustrate why that's dumb in two ways. And let's call it dumb. Aesop's fable about the tortoise and the hare. What is the moral of Aesop's fable about the tortoise and the hare? Slow and steady wins the race. If we were to apply the same logic to Aesop's fable, about the tortoise and the hare that we do with the scriptures, we would say, yeah, but there's so much distance between us and Aesop, and, you know, I'm not even reptilian, so, like, it doesn't apply to me. So, like, I mean, I'm not a rabbit, I'm not a tortoise, like, none of this applies to me. And then every one of us in there are like, yeah, that's dumb. Yes, it is. Do you get my point? Like, I think that we just a lot of times just build up this really goofy straw man argument as to why we shouldn't put the hard work in to see how it does, in fact, apply. And we just kind of use that as, like, an excuse. Let me illustrate this a little further. Uh, whenever I was growing up, I'm the youngest of three boys. Um, I was about 10, my older brother was 12, and then my oldest was 14, so we're all two years apart. And we had a trampoline, and not one of the ones that had the fancy net around the edges. We, I'm talking about like the trampoline that I don't even know if we had the pads that covered the springs. And so if you landed on that joker, like it's gonna pinch you, right? So this is like a death trap. Well, that wasn't dangerous enough for us, and so what we did is we drug it to the edge of the house where the gable end is, so like the highest point of the roof. And so we got it positioned where we thought was best. And then, as boys do, what did we do? We got on the roof with the intent to jump off. So me and my brothers are standing up there, and it's, it's a whole lot further down there from the top than it is from looking up down on the ground, right? And now we got to decide, well, who's going to go first? Well, I wasn't going to do it because I'm the youngest. Like, you know, Kyle, you should go. You're the oldest. You have at it. And I, I have it in my mind. I remember so clearly. Kyle gets up, again, on the top of the gable, and instead of, like, just stepping off, my man, like, gets into a position and just springboards up, right? And not only that, he gets, I mean, he's elevating. Like, I think I'm looking at the bottom of his shoes. And he is completely vertical. And he comes down, and, like, me and Brett are just, like, watching. And I see him come down, and I see his ankle go, like, as he hits the ground. I'm pretty sure he bottomed out. And this dude just, like, flips over. He flops over on the ground, and he's just writhing in a pile over there. And me and Brett, our first thought was, 
okay, so when you jump, you gotta spread out, <laughs> right? Like, we didn't even care about this man. He might be dead, who knows? Like, it, we it wouldn't even check on him, right? You can obviously learn from dumb, foolish mistakes like that. I pray that you do, right? The scriptures are filled with these kinds of stories. But yet we look at it as like, ah, but that's like, that's not me. That's like 4,000 years ago. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? You do what I just did and you watch your brother, you know, quite possibly break his ankle and then you don't do that, right? That's the model. So the point here is learn from another fool's mistakes, read the scriptures, see that it applies, and then go from there. It's not that hard, yeah? I'm going to hammer that home a little bit further later on. All right. Questions or comments about, um, excuse me, about how prophets operated? Questions? Oh, yeah, we jumped. Oh, yeah, we, me and Brett kept going. Kyle, he was done. I don't think he broke his ankle, but, like, he definitely wasn't walking right for a bit. So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds calloused. It is, but, but I mean, hey, then, then, them's the breaks. You shouldn't have gone first, I guess, you know? Other questions about how prophets operated? All right. So let's talk about what the role of predictions are with the prophets. Whenever I tell you, I just say the word, just word association, prophet, what springs into your mind first? 100% correct. Man, you are sanctified. I'm, that's not my first thought. <laughs> Somebody else? Visions, right? What else? Man of God, okay. John? Signed by God to give a message. Maybe I'm the odd man out, but let me just be honest with you. I'm thinking of... Uh, God, what was homegirl's name? Professor Trelawney from the Harry Potter series, this crazy chick who's like a soothsayer and like is a fortune teller. Like literally, that's the first thing that springs to my mind when I hear the word prophet. I think of like a goofy wizard hat and like somebody who's got a crystal ball. Like I'm legitimately, I know that's not correct, but that's the first thing that springs to my mind. And I think the reason why, which by the way, does anyone else want to like be brave enough to say that you kind of think that's saying, okay, look, so I'm not the only one, all right? Okay. Let's, let's defend that for a moment, not too much, but let's defend it a little bit. Here's the reason why it's a big deal, is because prophets by nature, by their very nature, they are looking back to the covenant. We're going to talk about that big time here when we get to them being covenantal enforcers. They look back to the covenant, then they look around them to see what is going on in the world around them, and they speak to those people about what is coming in the future, Right? Does that seem like a fair assessment of how prophets operate? So by their very nature, they're kind of stuck between looking back, addressing what is happening now by talking about what's going to happen in the future. And so that's a big deal that it, by nature, they're talking about what's coming in the future. We could very easily fall into this trap of thinking of them as fortune tellers. But really, I want to draw this distinction. The difference between foretelling telling you about something before it happens, and forth-telling. Those are two very clearly different ideas. Foretelling is predicting the future, giving you, like, this is going to happen before it happens, okay? And it's just kind of isolated. That's all it is. Forth-telling is much more along the lines of you surveying your actions, or somebody surveying your actions and saying, if you continue on this path, this is where it leads. It's not just about natural consequences because there is supernatural inspiration from the Holy Spirit that God is with them where they're pointing back to the covenant and saying, well, he's already promised that. Go read Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. He talks about the curses if you fail to obey the covenant and the blessings if you maintain the covenant. And what they're doing is they're looking back and saying, if you keep doing this, this is where it is going. Okay. Does that sound more familiar to like what prophets are actually doing? Now, I, th I think that's absolutely accurate, but they do this in different ways because they actually give different predictions. And I'm going to rattle these off real quick so you can see those. 
They have conditional predictions. If you read in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, this is where God tells Isaiah, like, come, let's reason together. You're in sin. And then later in verse 19, he says, if you are willing and you are obedient and you repent, you'll live. If you don't, you won't. Right? There's the condition. If you repent, this won't happen. If you don't, this will. Right? So there's a conditional kind of prediction. There's what we call an unqualified prediction, which is like Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah's sermon in Jonah 3, worst sermon ever. Like in Hebrew, it's like seven words. It's like 40 days, Nineveh overturned. Is essentially what like literally it comes out as. And that word for overturned is shuv, which could mean destroyed, like as in like I'm going to flip this table over, turn it over, and everything's going to spill off of it, and you're going to be destroyed. Or it could be repent. He doesn't elaborate. He just says 40 days overturned. And what happens immediately after that in verse 5 and 6? Nineveh repents. Now, they repent even though Jonah never told them, here's the conditions. And what we see there is that there is what we call the uncertainty principle. That, well, God didn't say that this certainly is going to happen. So there's a chance that if we repent, God will relent. In fact, David does this exact thing in Samuel. He's told your child is going to die. Bathsheba is about to give birth. And he's in like, the temple, palace, wherever he is that he's worshiping. I can't remember right now. And his servants come up to him and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, hey, I don't know. I'm repentant and maybe the Lord will be gracious and save him. He doesn't know. And so what's his default? Repent. Right? Then there's that confirmed in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Um, this is what God says to Habakkuk. He says, write down the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he who reads it may run for the still the vision is awaiting its appointed time and hastens to the end. It will not lie. It may seem slow, but wait for it. It will surely come. There is no delay. There's no wiggle room. <laughs> the prediction is it's coming. Are you tracking with me? Write it down. Remember, write it down. Don't forget. Tell other people. This is certain. Make sense? And then there's this sworn prediction. In Isaiah 45, 22 through 23, what God says is, turn to me and be saved. Praise God. Man, that's an amazing text. I am God, there is no other. By myself, I have sworn. There's no one else that God can swear by. So he says, I'm telling you, I am guaranteeing this. If you repent, I will save you. I have sworn... For my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee bows and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Sound familiar? So when Paul is picking up on that in Philippians, he's saying, no, 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 this is guaranteed. God swore that this would happen. Yeah? But here's the point. All of those are predictions about the future, but they're all done in very different ways. Has anyone ever really struggled with the fact that some of these minor prophets are just railing against whoever their audience is. And then God is gracious and forgives them. And we're like, what happened here? We didn't misunderstand God's gracious nature. You misunderstood the conditional or unqualified nature of the prediction. Is that making sense? So let me just hit on that real quick. Here's the main point. All of the prophets call us to covenantal faithfulness. But the latter prophets, the ones who write, especially like minor prophets, the major prophets, those guys are emphasizing the nature of the curses that are going to come as a result of breaking with the fidelity of the covenant in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Okay? So when they're talking about that, they're going to frame it as, God has already told you not to do this. You're doing it. Either repent or this is what is going to happen. Does that make sense? And so, think about it this way. This is what prophets do. They look back, they speak to the present, about the future. The prophets look back, they speak to the present, about the future. And they do it in different ways, and they make these different predictions. And sometimes that seems a little confusing for us, but whenever you put it in that framework, they're looking back, speaking to the present, about the future. Well, yeah, that, that future could be varied depending on how they respond to the message. Yes? 
So if we get that, let me think about it. Let me help you think about it this way. I've said it before, but I'll say it clearly here. The announcement of judgment that comes from a prophet is a gracious act of God, period. Even if it is the most horrible kind of judgment that we can conceive of, why is it gracious? Simple question. Does God have to announce that he is about to judge? What could he do, Heidi? He could just come and do it. So if there's a conditional uh, phrasing there, then now you know certainly there's wiggle room. Like, if we repent, okay, well, that's not going to happen. If it's unqualified, there's a chance. If it's sworn, yeah, maybe not. But you get the point here, is that the announcement of God's judgment is actually a gracious thing. So here's the application. Don't shy away from the minor prophets because it's doom and gloom. Don't. We think it's all negative. It's not. God is in in grace, announcing that there is judgment to come. Yeah? So see the grace and not just the judgment. Yeah? All right. Questions or comments about predictions? Incidentally, if you want more information about Alita's um, view that prophets are 100% correct, go read Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, I think is what it is, where, Paul, or where uh, Moses says... They are going to speak 100% truth, and if they say it's not 100% true, they're a false prophet, go kill them. Right? So this is serious business, yeah? Which is one reason why we might get confused, because if that's the standard, 100% correct, and then Jonah announces, y'all are about to die, and then God doesn't kill them, what happened? Well, they repented. There's God's grace. All right, questions, comments, thoughts, additions about predictions and the purpose of telling the future in prophetic utterances. We will talk about that. Incidentally, let's talk about that. Some of those common themes, we'll talk about that in a second. Any other questions though about predictions and that kind of jazz? Ed, yes sir. Yeah, so you're, you're specifically reaching back to Genesis 12 and 15 whenever, <coughs> excuse me, whenever God tells Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse, right? And we see that being carried over into Isaac and Jacob as well. Um, the question is, is that a sworn prophecy or is it something else? Is it like uh, substantially like guaranteed? Um, I would say that's pretty stinking close to a sworn prophecy because it's God himself interacting in that way. Like he's not talking to Abram as a prophet who is then going to be dismissed to go share that message with someone else. He's talking to Abram. So it's pretty close. Now, I think the, where we could get entailed in some uh, difficult details is to, okay, well, what does it mean to bless those who bless God or bless him, and what does it mean that God is going to curse those who curse Abram? Um, and what does it mean to like hold fidelity with God's people at that moment? I think that's why we have to see the full storyline to see how that works out. But yeah, I think you're thinking along the right lines is we need to bring it back to God's covenantal faithfulness, right? Because the question we're trying to answer over and over again in this series is how is relationship going to be restored? And the answer I keep saying is only ever always because of God's covenantal faithfulness. Yeah. Sue. Yep. Jonah. Moses. In fact, if you read in that, that account from Moses, God actually tells him, I'm going to send Aaron to be with you. He actually says, I'm going to send Aaron to be your prophet. But yes, keep going. Yes, you're on. Yeah, you're that's you're absolutely right there. Yeah. So many especially trials and tribulations that they have to go through.
Hosea. We'll talk about him in a bit. Yeah, in Amos chapter 7, Amos is talking to this cat named Amaziah. And this is in Amos 7, somewhere around 11 through 15. And Amaziah is like the high priest of one of the false temples that's in the northern kingdom. And uh, Amaziah tells him, like, hey, man, how about you go make your bread down south? And what he means by that is go make your living. Go earn your pay down there. Don't do that around here. No one wants you. And the way that Amos responds, he goes, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. And, like, yeah, you are. You are a prophet. His point there is, like, I wasn't trained in this. And immediately he says, I am a grower of sycamore trees, and I tend goats. The Lord spoke to me. Here I am. What, I don't know what you want me to say. And Amaziah kind of mouths off a little bit more. And then Amos goes, yeah, well, you know, I hate to tell you this, but like your entire family is going to die. All of them. Every one of them. Sorry. Right? It, it comes with consequences in that clearly the way that they are operating and the way that they are functioning in this uh, predictionary kind of role, it's not always good. By the way, before Jonah was the prophet who ran away from God and tried to go to Tarshish and didn't want to go to Nineveh, he was the prophet who got to tell the king in the northern kingdom, like, hey, God's with you and he's going to expand your borders. So you can see with Jonah, like, hey, man, things are going great. Hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. What? They're our enemies. You just told me that we're going to take land from them and now you want me to go to them? Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. That's, I, I appreciate the comment there. Like, that's, there's some crazy stuff. We're going to talk about that too. Yeah. Yeah, and what we would call those cats are false prophets. And those are the ones Jeremiah is really arguing with all the time, yeah? All right, so we don't run out of time. Let's talk about some common themes of the prophets. Number one, if you get nothing else about what prophets do and what they are, they are covenantal enforcers. And I, I mean that to be kind of a brutish kind of like, they are carrying a big stick, Right? When they're telling the entire northern kingdom, you are about to get wiped out by the most vicious people on earth because you have not obeyed the covenant. This is not some simple, easy, believism type stuff. Like these guys, remember, are looking back, speaking to the present about the future, and the thing that they're looking back to is in fact Deuteronomy. This is what uh, Peter Gentry, Peter Gentry was my uh, Hebrew professor at Southern. Um, amazing man. This is what he says. Everything in the prophets is based upon the covenant made between God and Israel during the exodus from Egypt, especially the expression or form of the covenant that is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so what he says is every single time that these prophets are looking around and saying something is wrong about the world, the way they know that is they pull out Deuteronomy and they go, oh, you're not doing that. And then Deuteronomy 27 says there's curses for that. You're not doing this. That's what this gets you. You're not doing that. And all they're doing is they're holding up the covenant to Israel or Judah, holding it up to them and saying, are you going to do this or not? No, then this is what awaits you. Hey, we don't like your message. We're going to kill you doesn't change the facts, <laughs> right? That's where we have to admire some of these cats. Doesn't change the facts. Try to kill me. Doesn't matter. God told me I got to speak. Here I am, man. What do you want me to say? Right? They are covenantal enforcers. They look at the covenant. They look at their actions. They remind them of the consequences. Go just glance through Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Everything that the prophets are talking about is going to happen if they fail to keep the covenant is lined out in the covenant. For my professors in the room or high school teachers or whoever, you give a syllabus at the beginning of the semester. This is what you will be graded on. I expect you to know these things. What happens when they don't know those things? It's going to be lined out in that syllabus. This is what your grade will look like if you don't make this level of achievement, right? 
It's the same thing. Like, this isn't some mystical thing where the prophets are, like, given this supernatural knowledge about God's will. They're just directed to the covenant, and they are inspired with some kind of holy bravery, and they go and do. Yeah? Kind of changes what we think about prophets there. They're covenantal enforcers. Yeah? Tracking with that? I think if you read the prophets that way, it makes it a whole lot easier. Second thing that they'll do a lot of times is they will describe local events using cosmic imagery. And I mean literally like moon, sun, stars, galaxies. The, I mean, like it's crazy. Like they're talking about a very specific thing that's happening with one group of people at one very small place on earth. And they're saying, this is what God's going to do, <laughs> right? And that seems kind of crazy, but whenever you're talking about the God who controls everything from the very small minutia of everyday life all the way to cosmic bodies not blasting into a billion atoms like that makes sense in jeremiah 31 this is what god says this is on the road to talking about the new covenant so this is a good thing thus says the lord who gives the sun the light of day and has fixed off uh, fixed the order of the moon and the stars by light at night and who stirs up the sea and the waves that roar the lord of hosts is his name that's me i do all that and this is what he says if these fixed orders depart from from before me then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heavens above can be measured, which they can't in, in this poetic form, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast all of the offspring of Israel, for they, um, for they have done what the Lord declares. And his point is like, if I can have a moment where I don't control the galaxies, then you're not my people anymore. Right, but he's talking about one very small particular group of people on earth that make up a fraction of the earth's population. And he says, y'all are so special to me, I promise that even the sun is going to keep doing what it, said, what it does because I say so. And the moment that quits, then yeah, you're off the hook. Right? So this is one, another one of those reasons why I think that we kind of fear reading the prophets is because like, it's... It's got such a huge scope, and it just feels overwhelming. Well, that's on purpose. Yeah? That's a common theme you'll run into. This is the big one. Social justice. I told you all a couple of weeks ago, this is the one that I think some folks might bristle at. Let me be as clear as I can. If you have a problem with that term, it's not because it's not biblical. It's because we've been influenced by the world too much. Okay? Whenever you look in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a series of woes where Isaiah is pronouncing, if you do this, which they have, God is going to rip you up. And every example he gives, he talks about this is what the covenant demands of you and how you live with your brother. There is these demands of justice and you act in righteousness. So that's two words that describe the same like idea and what that is is you are not doing according to the law to the people whom you are in covenant with another way you can phrase that is there are social impacts for you not living justly social justice that is the biblical category let me illustrate it for you amos chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 this is when amos is uncorking his like broadside on Israel. They thought they were off the hook and he lights them up. This is what he says. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Hey man, I see you're down on your luck. You need some help? You need some money? Cool. I will give you money. I need your shoes though. Oh, you don't have shoes? Let me, let me get your jacket. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of earth and they turn aside from the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl and the whole, so that my holy name is profaned. And they themselves uh, lay themselves down before every altar on garments taken in a pledge. Oh, you don't have shoes? Give me your shirt. They lay down on garments taken in pledge at the house of their God and they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Oh, you don't have the money today? I'm going to hold on to this shirt. I'm going to sleep on it while I'm drunk. And by the way, I'm going to pay for that alcohol from folks who couldn't pay me the full amount earlier. I took that dude's sandals and I sold them, and now I'm using that money to get drunk. Social 
affecting the people of Israel and injustice, this is what the prophets are on over and over again. Why is that? Because the covenant, Deuteronomy says, this is how y'all are supposed to live in relation with each other before me. And when they mess that up, there are real world consequences for their brothers in the covenant. Are you tracking with that? This is a biblical category. And just because somebody wants to infuse it with some democratic and like democratic party ideals of what social justice is, you should be unaffected by that. You should see that there is a right way to treat other people. In fact, I think a guy named Jesus had something to say about that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a distillation of social justice laid out in the covenant. You're going to see that over and over and over again. Yeah? Let's roll on with one more. I don't have a better term for this, so I just made this one up. Symbolic stunts. <laughs> that sounds demeaning, but let me try to put it together. Um, these prophets will go through some symbolic stunts to actually help illustrate their message. Hosea, what did he do? He married a prostitute. God told him to. Go marry, go marry. She's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to run off. You need to go get her. Yeah, you did that once. Okay, go do it again. Right? Um, let me get you some more of the cool ones. Jeremiah. <laughs> In Jeremiah 13, the first seven verses, go read that. God tells Jeremiah, hey, I need you to go get a loincloth that you wear under your garments. Go get some underwear. Go wear them for a couple of days. And when they're nice and ripe, what I want you to do is I want you to take them off and I want you to go put them in a rock down by the river and leave them there. And so Jeremiah goes and does that and God tells him, hey, I need you to go get that pair of underwear. And he gets them and they're gross, right? And the idea is that Jeremiah is running around preaching, flinging around dirty underwear. And he's saying, this is how defiled we are. It's a symbolic stunt. I don't really know how else to describe it, but he's acting out his message, yeah? Isaiah, the guy that I think of being regal, like literally, he grew up in the palace. He's of a royal lineage. He's kind of in this um, uh, Levitical line as well, so he's like this really weird, close mix of like a king and a priest, and he grew up in the court, and I always think of him being like super regal. You know what this dude did in Isaiah 20, 1 through 3? He ran around naked for three years. Three years. Let me read it for us. Isaiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against Israel, against it and captured it. And at that time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth. You're, yo, you're over here um, lamenting, and you're over here pouring over your grief, and you've got sackcloth and ash on you. Go ahead and take that off. Loose the sackcloth from you and take the sandals off of your feet. And if we're like, okay, well, maybe that means something different. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Verse 3, then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. Three years. Out there preaching about the covenant, naked. Ezekiel, he cuts all of his hair off. He gets it in a pile, and I, just, I imagine he's preaching while he's doing this. You can go read this in Ezekiel 5, 1 through 4. Uh, he gets all of his hair in a pile, and he divides it up into three sections. And with one section, he lights it on fire in front of him. He burns a third of it. And then he grabs a sword, and he cuts up the other one, hibachi style, in like tiny little pieces. And he's like, these just tiny little pieces of hair. And then when he's done with it, he grabs the other third, and he throws it up in the air. He says, we're scattered. We're destroyed. We're burnt. That is what we are. He's bald. and You know as well as I do, the man didn't probably do a great job. He didn't look nice and smooth. Like, so there's chunks of hair probably hanging out of his head. Some of it's still smoldering on the ground in that awful smell that you know. And he's saying, that's us. Jeremiah, he builds a little replica of Jerusalem, and after he gets done preaching, he smashes it. He says, that's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. These guys are going to do some wild stuff which is why I think you ought to read it. It's crazy. It's good stuff, right? They are going to do that because God is trying to get their attention. This is how big a deal it is. You have breached the covenant. This is what awaits for you. The little replica city, that's going to be us. My hair, that's going to be you. That underwear, that's you. Are we tracking with that? Like that is 
kind of weird, kind of gross, kind of crazy, all from God. Yeah? So, last two. There's going to be this prophetic warning and hope. We've already talked about that, that the announcement of judgment is gracious. And so they're warning this is going to come, but there's also that sliver. You can repent. You can be restored. You can be um, brought back into a relationship. Let me... uh, uh, actually, I'm not going to read because we're going to run out of time. And then the last one we're going to talk about on its own slide next is the day of the Lord. That's another one of those big topics that will come up over and over. Yeah? All right. Here's the point that I want to make for us about these themes that you're going to run into. The prophets often make us feel uncomfortable by highlighting our failure. And when Ezekiel's burning his hair, I would be uncomfortable, especially if he's making eye contact with me. He's burning it and saying, that's you. Right? The prophets serve to remind us of God's words and God's word and its demands on our lives. So when you feel the pressure as you're reading the Old Testament, because the prophets are speaking, and you are inclined to not read it, you should. Here's my theory. I think we don't like reading, especially the minor prophets, Amos, those cats. We don't like reading them because we're like, ah, it's too hard. I can't understand it. It, It's kind of a waste of my time. I think a second reason why we say we don't read uh, the Minor Prophets is because it's all doom and gloom. It's all bad all the time. I think we're liars. I think every one of us, when we have that inclination, I think we are liars because I think when we read those texts, we may not understand the nuance but I think we get what's going on here. That's God calling out wickedness, and we see it in ourselves. Here's what I'm asking of you. I would rather you be confused than be a liar. Go read the prophets. Come to me and be like, dude, I don't understand any of this stuff. Great. I can tell you're right. You're actually reading. Like, you're giving it an effort. Let's do this together. That is good. I think that's a better outcome than us just lying about, well, you know, I can't understand it. Eh, can you? Really? You've been a Christian for 30 years. You've heard however many sermons about this. You don't understand anything about Habakkuk? Come on now. Well, it's all doom and gloom. Yeah, because you're feeling the pressure of them putting their thumb right on your pet sin, and you don't like it. I would rather us be confused than be liars. Yeah? Can I say that among friends? All right, questions about major themes or comments about me calling you a liar. I'll take those as well. Alita, you got something? Yeah, that, I think that was Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I think, I'm pretty sure that was Ezekiel and that uh, God told him to lay on one side for a year and a half, I think it was. Like three, well, three years total, because he has to roll over on one side for a year and a half, and then he gets to go to the other side for a year and a half. Um, and God's concession, because I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this rightly, Ezekiel tells him, like, well, how am I going to cook food? And God's like, oh, well, I'll give you dung you can cook over. You can cook over poop, and you can boil some water. You'll be good. And Ezekiel's like, yeah, can I have my hair? No, can't. we are burn, right? I'm pretty sure it was Ezekiel, yeah. Say again? Yeah, Ezekiel. There's some wild stuff in Ezekiel, especially the first five chapters with the wheels, within wheels that are covered in eyes and there's wings. Crazy, man. Good read. Go read it. Get confused. I would rather you be confused than be a liar. Yeah. All right, other comments about that before we talk about the day of the Lord and then we'll be done. Paul, you got something? Mm-hmm. What does a replacement theologian do with the the heavens and the stars? What you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think the way that we would approach that is saying, well, God's not going to lose control, right? Um, Even the imagery that gets talked about in Revelation 
17 and 18, whenever you have the, the beast and the harlot, and then you have the city, which is pictured as Rome or Babylon, and that there's the, the dragon with, a, with his tail, he swipes a third of the stars out of the sky. I don't think he's actually talking about real cosmic, literal things that God's losing control. I think what's being described there is like, this is real bad. And like, it's all within God's pur- purview of how it's operating, but I would never argue that God actually loses control in that way. And so the replacement theologian, depending on kind of where you fall in that spectrum, you might have some really fancy defense. I'd like to hear them. I don't know if I would agree. Probably wouldn't, but yeah. Does that address kind of your thought or concern? I'm certainly not. Yeah. And if you don't know what that means, it's really close to this idea, those kind of go hand in hand with annihilationism, that whenever God judges someone, instead of sending them to hell for eternity, they're just annihilated and they don't exist. They have no consciousness. They are just deleted. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I can't get down with that because of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 with Revelation 19 and 20. I, just, I can't get down with it. So those two kind of go together. So if one of them sounds crazy to you, well, there you go. There's a reason for that. I'm not saying that there's not a reason why people don't, they don't have evidence. I'm just, I haven't seen a convincing argument. So, all right, let's talk about the day of the Lord, because I think that's where your mind is in part coming along with that. So, when I say the day of the Lord, what springs to your mind? Sunday, right? Yeah. So the Lord's day, day of the Lord. Yeah, makes sense. Christ's return, okay? What else? Greg, you got something cooking up? None that you want to share right now? I think for most of us, what springs to mind is Jesus and his return. And here's what I want you to hear. It is not just the final day of existence when Christ returns in glory, Revelation 19 shows up on a white horse, sword hanging out of his mouth, and a robe dipped in blood, like... He's got a name written on his thigh that only he knows. That's not just it. I think that is the day of the Lord, but it's not the only one, as it were. Let me, let me explain that. Um, in Hebrew culture, a day is from one evening to the next, to this very day. And Passover was celebrated in the evening when it started to get dark. And then what happened for us when it hits daylight the next time, we would say the next day, but for them it's the same day. What happens immediately after the Passover in Exodus chapter 13 and 14? They exodus. They leave. That event, in shorthand, is called the day. In many Hebrew circles, like that, they just refer to it as the day. And so what's actually going on there is that's not the only day because there is going to be a final day of judgment, and I think that's where we run to, but here's what I'm saying. Any time that God steps into human history for the sake of justice, that's the day of the Lord. It can happen at multiple places, multiple times, multiple uh, people, but the point is it's going to culminate eventually with the return of Christ in Revelation 19, but I think there is more to it than that. And here's the thing. It's not always good. And I want to show you that with a shocking reversal from Amos chapter 5. So Amos chapter 5, this is what Amos 5, 5 and 6 says. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Don't go to Gilgal, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Beersheba, come to me. Seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. And then in verses 14 and 15, what Amos, what God says through Amos. He says, seek good, not evil. Stop doing what you're doing. Covenant, you're not doing it. This is what awaits you. Seek good and not evil that you may live, right? So you say, seek that you would live and not die. Seek good so that you can leave. You see the connection there? And so the Lord of hosts, he will be with you, as I've said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Social justice matters in the gate. This is where our relationships matter, and you're messing it up. Fix it. And then in verse 18 through 20, this is what God says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe. That word there in Hebrew, 
essentially that's the word that gets used when people crying out in funeral processions to warn someone that there's a dead body coming behind them so that somebody wouldn't become ritually unclean so they can kind of get out the way. And the way that's kind of carried out is whenever they're wailing this word of woe, they're saying this person is dead. And whenever it's announced over someone who's alive, it says you are as good as dead. Woe to you, you are as good as dead if you desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and it is not light. As if a man fled from a lion, made it out alive. You fled from a lion and a bear met him. Okay, maybe that situation doesn't work. Maybe you fled from a lion and instead of running into a bear, you went into the house and you leaned your hand against the wall and a serpent bit you. He's like, you are hosed. It is a day of darkness. It is not a day of light. It is gloom and there is no brightness in it. Here's the point. God will demolish all evil and all injustice wherever it is found, including with Israel. They get run over by Assyria. Those ten tribes never even really reconstitute. They're just gone. Judah doesn't fare much better because they don't get destroyed. They go off into exile. God will demolish all evil. And when those things happen, you know what that day is called? The day of the Lord. Now, ultimately, there is going to be a day, Revelation 19, Jesus, sword, blood-dipped robe, the whole nine. And that's whenever he writes everything cosmically. And that's where everything comes to a head. But all those other instances of God intervening for justice on behalf of the covenant, this is how you're supposed to live in relationship with me. If you're messing it up, this is what awaits, right? And what he's saying is when Jesus shows up, he fixes every bit of that. And he fixes it with a sword, correct? He's got it hanging out of his mouth, right? There's going to be a big old battle, right? Then why is there blood on his robe already? It's not the blood of the saints. It's his blood from the day, from Passover. If you go look in Revelation chapter 4, John starts crying because there's no one who can open the scroll and the seals in the throne room of God. And then eventually somebody cries out, there's a lion's roar, and John's like, that's the guy, and it's a slain lamb. He defeats evil, not by military prowess with the sword coming out of his mouth. That's just him pronouncing judgment because he's already settled it on the cross. Word? All right, we're running out of time, so let me say this. The day of the Lord is a terrifying thing for anyone who deserves judgment. Yes? Can we agree? Simple question. Do you deserve judgment? judgment? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. We all deserve judgment for our failures. Go read the Roman road, get you tracked out. You're right there. You got everything you need, right? That's why it is so vital for us to see the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That is why it is so pivotal for us to read minor prophets to see how gracious the announcement of judgment that is, that is coming. It is coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. We've got to see how gracious that is. So here's the application I have for you. Go be a prophet and tell somebody about the judgment and the forgiveness. Go and do likewise. I'm not saying you're going to be laying on your side for a year and a half or burning your hair. I ain't saying all that. But what I am saying is you know something that person doesn't. That there is coming judgment and there must be the day of the Lord for somebody and they can be saved. So go and do that. Here's some final thoughts. Number one, man, the prophets are wild. It's wild, man. That's great. That's good stuff. It's great. The prophets serve a vital role for the health of God's people. When they start getting real goofy, whether it's a king or it's the people as a whole, God sends a prophet and says, hey, you're doing it wrong. He looks back, speaks to the present about the future. Yes, They serve a vital role of announcing coming judgment, but also mercy. Yes? And here's the thing that I think we haven't even mentioned, but I just want to say it clearly here. 
you do realize that the work of the prophets was very much ineffective. In fact, Isaiah is told, hey, go speak to these people. They're not going to hear you. They're not going to see, but speak to them anyway. Jeremiah is like, okay, I'm ready to roll. Okay, good, good. Just before you go, no one's going to listen to you. Got it? Go. If they were effective, the storyline of the Old Testament would look very different. Yes? But here's the big thing that it leads to is you do realize that your boy Johnny B and Jesus stand in the lineage of Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Hosea. They're not burning hair. They're not marrying prostitutes. But they are out there eating bugs. They are out there flipping over tables. Why do you think Jesus is doing that? He is enacting his message if all of this is going away. And it's all going away, not because of the day of the Lord is coming later, but because I'm here right now. Yes? So if we miss that that's the lineage that John the Baptist, your boy Johnny B, and Jesus are coming from, you're not going to be able to make a whole lot of sense of Jesus cursing the fig tree on the way to the temple. It's going to be weird. Why is he doing that? I don't know. We can't know. It's impossible. Yes, you can. Yeah. All right. We're already over, but I will take whatever questions we have at this point. Does this help you understand the prophets a little bit better, this really weird, eclectic group of guys doing crazy things? All right. All right, so real quick. We are nearly done. We've only got a couple more weeks, like five more weeks of this stuff. Next week, I'll shoot a video where we'll talk about Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then we'll talk about how the Assyrians are about to destroy Israel. Um, so I'll record a video on that. I think me and Greg are going to be up here. I don't really know exactly what we're going to do. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Um, so that's what's going to be happening in here. We're going to talk about like the actual current state of what's happening in Israel with your work over there. But also... We're going to talk about just some other bigger things about even related to Ed's statement earlier. How does this tie back to Genesis 12 and 15? Yeah? Cool? All right, let me pray for us. Go get your kids. Father, we thank you. Um, I praise you for who you are. And I thank you for sending the prophets as messengers, as those who are warning us, and that there is instruction and wisdom that we can gain. And Father, I pray that you will, that you will be gracious to us and allow us to understand more deeply through your Holy Spirit what it is that you have recorded for our benefit. And so, Father, I pray that that will happen and that uh, you would be honored by it. And we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.